This is a very special episode of Through the Window, News of the Century. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to a new episode of News of the Century. All the news that's fit to print. This has been a while coming now, I feel, because as far as all of the new books that Alex has put out this year, and my God, it's only April at this point. Isn't that a sentence to say all of the books he's put out this year? Yeah. Certain authors struggle to put a book out a decade. Yeah, we there was a whole conversation that was going on in the Discord mm. about that. You know, and it is, to a certain extent, kind of overwhelming, just in terms of, like, all the new stuff that we have been able to talk about and piece together and have feelings about, and to know that, you know, oh, oh he's, he's hard at work on the next one. And maybe it's coming a little slower. He's having issues for various reasons. But, like, I find myself wondering how many new books you and I are going to end up doing News of the Century on before the end of 2021 at this rate. Because these are coming out quicker than anything else he's produced at this point. Like, obviously, the audio dramas will take a lot longer to put together, even Mm -hmm. as he is already collecting all of the voice acting from all the other people and then having to edit it together with his own stuff, with Sharon's stuff, um, with all of the music and everything else that he Mm. wants to incorporate. And those will get put out weekly, just the same as he's been doing for the remastering of Arlington. If he started tomorrow on Stone Spring Maidens, that's the next one, because he did Uncivil Outlaw, mm-hmm. and he kept on doing you know a chapter per week, and then you know after he finished that, he had maybe a month gap, and maybe that would be when we would do our interviews with him as a sort of breather, and then he started straight away on Panther Soul, which I don't think he should, but like, let's just say that like hypothetically he did, and then he did the same thing, and then he did the same with this, with Nightfall of the Wendigo. That would probably take him a year and a half there, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's well, we don't necessarily know what's going on behind the scenes. Mm. Alex works a lot in terms of just constantly putting together podcasts for School of Movies. Mm. And then on top of that, like that's one of the things that he mentioned the other day is that he's got a huge battery at this point of School of Movies episodes ready to go out so that he can focus on A, the writing, and I suspect B, also the audio dramas for the three books that he's already finished writing so far this year. So, I mean, heck, we both know of a secret project of his that will be going on alongside that, but feel free to cut this out. Fair enough. I mean, I didn't end up doing that because all that was said is that we had a secret project and we'll just let people ponder what that might be until it is finally revealed. 
it's entirely possible that the way he has things played out, there may not be very much of a gap between Stone Spring Maidens and Panther Soul at all. I mean, it will take months for all of it to be released, and he's not even going to begin with Stone Spring Maidens until he's he's like a couple of chapters away, I think, from the end of the remaster of Arlington. Mm. But on top of that, just thinking about it, I actually have no idea how it's going to be in regards to us doing post-audio drama Q&As. Are we going to end up doing two of these things this year? Because the way things have gone before, we would end up doing one after Stone Spring Maidens, Mm -hmm. and then we would end up doing one after the Panther Soul audio drama is released. Those two would take several months to come out to begin with, plus whatever content we record with them and however many weeks that takes. Or alternately, I mean, this is obviously a conversation that's going to have to happen during the lead-up. Are we going to end up doing one massive Q&A for two of them? I guess it depends on what else is going on in their lives and how they want to schedule things and everything like that. So It's entirely, like I think, either one would work. And in my head just now, I had a sort of idea that I don't think would be a good idea of how to release this. But could you imagine if Alex did... One week is a chapter of Stone Spring Maidens. Next week, chapter of Panthersoul. Then just like keep bouncing between them. That would be a terrible idea. But the fact that he can do it is something. It's definitely something. <laughs> yeah, no, I think in this particular case, he's going to want to focus on one thing at a time to make sure that you know he keeps everybody's attention with the story that he has. Mm. Not to mention that I suspect, based on things that have been said, that He's been putting together the various samples from all of the voice actors for Stone String Maidens longer than he has with Panther Soul. There's this unusual thing going on where in 2020, he did like a majority of the work for both of those books in 2020 and then had to hold off because 2020 was just awful for the creative spark and everything like that. And then he ends up finishing both of those books in short order one after the other within the first few months of 2021. But on top of that, like I have to imagine as far as providing the pieces that he would want Loretta and Matt and Orion and everybody to actually record on, he would have sent that to them early as soon as he was happy with, okay, this is what I want to set in stone and then give them plenty of time to get that back to him so that he could put it all together. And it would also be generally in a, what's the word, um, a linear order in terms of like, he would want to have the stuff done for the early chapters done before the later chapters, because then that would make it easier for him to put out the first chapters of Stone Spring Maidens as he was putting together the others, basically. In this particular case... Unlike when you're doing a movie or anything like that, and you don't release it until all of it is done, uh, here, the order in which things are done is kind of more important. If you're putting out, like, the first ten chapters while you're working on the next ten or whatever, like mm-hmm. that. Okay, so we, we're talking a lot so far about the, the mechanics of 
releasing the audio dramas after releasing the books and not enough about this story. Toby, as per his usual brand now, is highly caffeinated or at least moderately caffeinated going into in, this. In the time that we have taken to finish this introduction, I finished my cup of coffee. So um, <laughs> You're fully fueled then. Yes, the endowment has been taken aboard. I am ready. Um, so yes, uh, what are we talking about? Nightfall of the Wendigo? The one you just finished, yes. Yes, the one I just finished, yes. I That title, I, I almost said Nightfall of the Century because of what we're doing right here, News of the Century. So, uh, <laughs> No, it's not yeah. quite that bad. We, we, mm. we haven't quite reached the, the twilight, so to speak, of this entire multiverse or anything like that. We, we've no, reached we've a reached critical the point. <laughs> well, just in terms of metaphorically, <laughs> I'm saying this is a dark story in general, and the title of the book is meant to imply that it is a dark point for the Wendigo themselves. Mm. Um, to be honest, for a while until the book was actually revealed, I thought that the title of this book was saying that there was a Wendigo that named themselves Nightfall, it, which is a very different kind of... character, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. The, the, the mm. one that's actually on the cover. Obviously, that has been disproven at this point, mm. and the thematic resonance makes more sense overall. Greg, um, we can't get all our predictions right. Where would the fun be in that? No, it's true, because sometimes, because that's, this is the content that people are expected to put out on YouTube and everything these days. Whenever there is something new coming up, we're supposed to have predictions for whatever's going to be happening in this show. Or Arrow, in the next pointed, circles, facial expressions, <laughs> an emoji for no reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, mm. thinking about it in comparison to the show that you and I did way, way back when in like March or April of 2020, where we were like, okay, what do we think that these books are going to be about based on the little bit of information I we have? Listen back to that because yeah. like, I was thinking back then, like, oh man, it's going to take a long while before like a lot of these like books get released. And actually just wait a couple of months at a specific point in time. You'll get half of these. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I've got to listen back to that because that one will be like a doozy. And I think uh, Alex himself knows that there's a certain amount of fun in not like trying to get everything like to mm. on the mark, you know, revisiting old predictions for the Star Wars, the next Star Wars trilogy or like for other things. It's just it's part of the fun. You throw darts at the board and some of them won't even be at the right direction. But hey, that's the point. It's part of the fun, provided you can be content with what you actually got. Because we kind of know that it's a thing right now where people are like, oh, we're watching WandaVision, this is going to be this, and that's going to be that. We didn't get any of that. Fuck this show. This is a horrible show. And I'm just like, no. Calm your face. Have some tea. I mean, we had Last Jedi on the mind anyway because of certain yeah. story beats in this, but... Uh, yeah. yeah, so... Mm. Before I start getting into some of my thoughts about the book, mm -hmm. you're the one that just finished reading it. You've had a couple of hours to come down, and now you're caffeinated. 
Mm. What are so, you... I don't know what that shape represents on a graph. It's a slope and then another slope. It's, uh, I guess, I've had my nadir and I'm now back into another, like, high slope of it. Uh, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. I was just going to ask, what are your immediate feelings after having finished reading it? This one is hard for me because... We come into each of these News of the Century episodes without necessarily a lot of preparation, or at least I don't, other than my cup of coffee. You come in with a bit more because usually just the pattern of our lives means that you'll have read it and there'll be a gap of some weeks or even month or two between your first read-through and my first read-through. So there's a certain amount more perspective from your reflection on it. And for me, it's very fresh. For me, with the last two, I definitely had this sort of strong, specific feeling that I took away from it that I could apply to what it did for me, like what value I took away from it. I, Stone Spring Maidens is very special to me because of what that story was at the time that it came out. And then uh, Panther Soul is Panther Soul. It's great. It's one of the best books he's written, yada, yada. Nightfall of the Wendigo is a lot. It's shorter than the other two books. I think that it's shorter than Stone Spring as well, isn't it? I know it's definitely shorter than Panther Soul. Well, Panther Soul just feels like it's huge mm. based on the scope. Based on the scope, based on the amount of story that it's trying to tell, also mm. based on the fact it's meant to be a follow-up to Tiger's Eye and therefore reveal a lot about the world that we haven't seen yet. Mm. Because all of my books are in EPUB format and I view them on the Kindle app, that means that I don't actually know, particularly since you can easily shift the font size on the mm. screen to have it take up more room or less room if you need the letters bigger or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know exactly how many physical pages any of these stories actually take up. That I would Yeah, have to that like... was the same position I was in. I think Panthersol was over 400. Stonespring might have been 350 of some kind. But these are like sort of... These pages would be smaller than if I had them physical and printed in front of me. So like that's not necessarily representative of it. But... Relative to that, uh, Nightfall was 250, so mm. a good portion shorter and more like direct. But I think because of like the amount that is changed by the end of this book, it almost feels like, did we do another Steamheart? Because it feels <laughs> like we just did another Steamheart. Not necessarily. Well, okay, so... Well, another Steamheart comes in at the end, so I guess we did do another Steamheart. <laughs> As far as the larger consideration of this book is concerned, and for those that don't understand how I am, oh, by the way, media, spoilers. Oh, right. <laughs> like, duh. like at this point, we're not only talking about spoilers for this book, but this book. The other itself, two you haven't read yet. Yeah, well, not not even necessarily the just the fact that we're that stuff from Stone Spring Maidens or Panther Soul might come up. Like, we've, we've mentioned them, but we haven't necessarily meant any plot-relevant stuff that would be spoilers. But the thing about Nightfall of the Wendigo is that specifically, 
and Alex includes this as a part of his author's forward, a new process that he's begun ever since he released Stone Spring Maidens. He mentions that this is one of the first books that he's put out basically since Uncivil Outlaw. Like, I'd actually have to think about that, but hold on. It, what he actually writes is, in this case, it really helps if you have read The Cartographer's Handbook, Secret Rooms, Arlington, Steamheart, and Uncivil Outlaw. Okay, it looks like this is the first book where the usual rule doesn't apply. What you are holding is for those who have been following the progress of the world of Century. Prepare mm -hmm. yourselves for a major turning point. Mm -hmm. And that is very true. Mm -hmm. One of the things Alex mentioned going into this is that he'd be very interested in seeing how many of the little details the audience would pick out, but more specifically that you and I would pick out. Oh. Because that was of all the of moment the work where I started doing. sweating because I was like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> I and... was like, oh dear. I, I need to go through this with a fine tooth comb. <laughs> yeah, and on top of, because I've, I've, I've already been not humiliated, but sort of like called on the carpet for the fact that I didn't notice that there were some spe very specific name choices of bit characters in Panther Soul that were very literally a reference not only to us, but the fact that we missed something in our deep dive review of Tiger's Eye. So I've, I've never been so honored and insulted simultaneously. <laughs> uh, yeah. So when we're talking about, okay, you just finished it. You're mm -hmm. two hours out. Yeah. You've had your coffee. You're, you're running mm -hmm. high in terms of yeah. overall energy. What do I feel I, about it? Well, well, sorry, we'll get back to that. Yes. But I was explaining that for those that aren't aware by this point, although I think it's probably come up either in other episodes of Through the Window or, or potentially other news of the century. Oh, it definitely has. Because I was reviewing our podcast that we did on Panther Soul as part of the lead up to our second Skype recording on Nightfall. And I deliberately call attention to the way I intake literature. Whenever these books get dropped, I am like on that shit like Flynn. Just clear my schedule here. I have nothing else to do until I finish reading this book. Just and it hook it to my veins. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily work out that way because I'm trying to do it in between any other responsibilities that I have. But mm. it's like... If I'm at my mom's house and like doing chores or if I'm doing errands and I have a slow moment where I'm like, you know, OK, I'm waiting in line at the grocery store, pull out my phone. Where did I leave off? OK, dive right back in. I'll do it in between when I can, when I don't need to be deliberately focusing on whatever it is that I have to be working on. And that's how I tend to work in general until it's done. I just literally just like shovel it into my mouth. And that sometimes means that I can miss some of the salient points along the way. But it's it's just however my brain works in terms of like, if it's something that I'm super engaged with or feel that I'm going to be super engaged with, then it's not just about reading the text itself and enjoying it. It's very much a case of I want to know what happens next. Okay, mm -hmm. I just read this part. 
I want to know what's going to lead off from that. I want to yeah. know the character beats. I want to know the plot twists. And then I can come back later on, partake. You want to have a complete picture. Beat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It helps me honestly figure out how I actually feel about something mm. by taking it fast and then taking it slow later on. And that's basically what happened with me. On the two days that you had been taking your time and posting slowly about the chapters as you went, I took an opportunity to dive back in myself and read along a little bit and remind myself and focus a little bit more on individual aspects. That experience was kind of important for me because I came out of this book feeling very conflicted and unsure of myself about how I felt about the plot twists and not just the plot itself, but some of the structural elements of the book that made it difficult to read in places. I worried that maybe certain emotional reactions affected my ability to appreciate the book because I came away from it not disliking it per se, but feeling more mixed about the experience. And that was unfamiliar to me in regards to the oeuvre of New Century. We'll talk about some of those aspects, and I'll be very interested in getting your feedback from them. But no. this second reading, and also following along with the detailed things that you had to say reading this book, sort of helped me come to terms a little bit better with this book as a concept. So therefore, even though... This book, when we eventually get to it as being a part of the retrospective, is going to involve a fuck of a lot of drawn-out conversation and mining it for details and all of that. And this is really just you and me giving our hot takes. I feel like I can come to this story a little bit more honestly, a little bit more positively, and then I can frame the issues that I do have in a context that doesn't feel like I'm taking pot shots at Alex or at New Century in general. Because I, I want to come to this with the same level of positivity that I have every other book so far. Hmm. You know, as, as much as there are difficult themes that we end up talking about, especially recently with the Cartographer's Handbook and some of the stuff that's going to happen in Arlington and everything like that, it was here that I heard one of Toby's neighborhood motorcycles go past, but unfortunately it actually didn't pick up on the audio, which is why I have to make reference to it here in a editorial insert. There goes one of the titular Wendigos now. <laughs> oh no, it's the nightfall of that Wendigo. Um... <laughs> Far less yes, catchy oh. title. Oh no, it's the nightfall of that Wendigo. <laughs> that one particularly. Yes, exactly. We could barely hear it, so maybe they're just, you know, like, having a bad day or whatever. Well, um, apparently they're dwindling out. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, hey, that's going to be one of the topics. That's another conversation, yeah. Yeah, that's another... There, there are going to be a There's lot... There's so many conversations to have. <laughs> yeah, exactly so. But my point is, is that in spite of all of the difficult conversations, in spite of all the darkness especially as these stories relate back to current events and everything like that. I want this 
fan podcast to be an overall source of positive discussion. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we discussed way back when was the idea that the genre for New Century, if it has a genre, was called Hope Punk, which mm-hmm. is not something that Alex came up with, but it, it fits overall well with the thematic weight of the stuff that he's putting out. And so therefore I want to I want our discussion to be of that same tenor overall. Mm-hmm. And not for it to be like like I don't think you and I could ever be anything on the level of fucking cinema sins or anything like that. That's just not how our brains work. But mm-hmm. we've had plenty of conversations along the way about how some of the stuff that are in these books can be troubling and difficult to get through and oh my god if there are troubling and difficult to get through parts in new century and nightfall of the wendigo has plenty of them yeah before we talk about that mm-hmm. let's begin by talking about the things that we really liked so go to toby okay so you asked me earlier like how i felt about it and i basically kind of meandered and didn't answer your actual question but I would say how I feel about it from like a positive thing is that I think this was a really refreshing take on a new century story to me because as much as it is centering on a lot of familiar characters, I think that the chemistry between or indeed the lack of chemistry between James, Rebecca and Butler when they start out on their mission is just a very unique one in when I consider a lot of the rest of New Century because there's a lot of like characters who don't really have a lot of common ground who slowly build that common ground up and form really strong connections with one another. That that has happened throughout New Century. But in this one, I think what was so striking about it and what kind of got to me was that It takes the time to really show how isolated each of these people are, these three people who are going on this mission. It kind of shows that there's different reasons and it's over different timescales. James has been feeling isolated for six months since like the events of Uncivil Outlaw came to a close. Butler has felt like completely isolated since the events of Steamheart a year ago. And Rebecca has basically been kind of living a life of self-imposed isolation with only brief glimpses of letting someone else in for the last 12 years or so. And the book dedicates almost a chapter for each of them. And then when it gets to the point where they're all together, which is usually the point where you have those group conversations during travel or things like that, it actually kind of deliberately takes the uh, time to say that they didn't have that conversation. Or like when Rebecca goes off to talk with Washington, that James and Butler were in their own respective cabins. When you think about how their relationship started in secret rooms, that just feels like it's been so long and it's so far away from how they were in that. And I think that it really puts into perspective just the place these people are at. I think that's what I really appreciated about this was that as much as it is this kind of 
moving the pieces story in New Century. And really all of the books are moving the pieces. There's always some forward momentum to all of the books. But with this one, it really is, okay, we're getting to a turning point here, people. It's nevertheless cohesive with one another, particularly because it starts out with that prologue where you see Sana's gift of actually being able to communicate with the other it's hard to convey this in audio i'm realizing the rest of her people rather Mm -hmm. than the wendigos and she's able to do that internally without actual expression so their communication is just rock solid and then you go to the main characters of this book and you realize just how much they lack that that they've almost lost it a lot of the book has a kind of bleakness to it, or at least this feeling that each character has kind of accepted that this mission is going to fail and there's really only so much good we can do. But they want to do something because it feels like, how can I best spend the life I've got that I'm not particularly fond of? I'm just, I have to do something to make myself feel a little bit better. And as the journey goes on, they kind of find a bit more of their old selves back. They are able to actually find something that is worth nourishing and cultivating. And I think that by the end of the book, they're able to actually look over what they've done and say that as bad as things look now, as bad as like things have gotten over the last 24 hours, we can say that this was a success. We did achieve some things. What we did mattered and what we can do will matter. And I think that's what felt really valuable to me was that I've I've often talked about the sort of therapy that I sort of applied these books to, the idea of just looking at my own state of being and what stories are being told here and trying to sort of gel them somewhat, apply them is probably the better word. But here it was this feeling of I've had days where I just feel like I am sinking into the earth, but that even on a day that starts like that, I can actually put one foot in front of the other and eventually get to a point where I've done some good and some part of me has come back. And that makes taking those chances each day worthwhile. I trimmed this next bit for time, but just picture me quiet for several long seconds, like Malcolm Reynolds looking down at the curled-up body of River Tam in an open crate, before making this noise. Hmm. So that's a broad thing. Uh, That's a broad, like, positive thing. I think that this book is terrifically tense. There's multiple chapters that in the first part that are very much setting up. You know that there are only so many pages in this book and you know the stakes at play here. Turn each page with dread, just like know exactly like how bad things can be and go forward if you dare. In a way, this feels like a sequel to Let Them Go. A very like They're very different, but I think the feeling I had with Let Them Go was I was worried about each chapter, each episode that would release, because I was 
dreading what new development would happen. You know, we lost Rafe one episode and then the next episode we lost Aunt Cleo. I don't know how much more I can take. And in this one, even if you don't lose characters like hard and fast until you kind of get to the last third of the book. And I think that both Rebecca and Butler share this and Rebecca even comments on it. They're both sharply aware that the worst not only can happen, but has happened and can happen again, which means that there's just a readiness for it, an acceptance, a sort of grim, like, for fuck's sake, let's just get on with it. It's not necessarily a fun experience. It's not something that sort of energizes you like uh, Stone Spring Maidens or Panther Soul. And I think that's why we both came into this with a certain amount of how will this look as a news of the century episode? Because the whole point about this is to kind of share the fresh reaction. And because these books energize us, we share that energy. And then that energizes Alex and whoever listens to it. And it's it's like poetry. It rhymes. But this is not necessarily a book that energizes you throughout. It's like a dull, the dull embers of a bonfire that feels like it's going to fade away. And then it just gains a little bit more, like it starts to come back up and there's moments where it flares up. And then after that, what you're left with is a bonfire that isn't, necessarily going to like last forever it's not that it's the problem has been solved it's just you feel like it can burn a little bit longer so that was a mouthful but it's it, also it was many was, mouthfuls yes but that's that's what i was looking for from my caffeinated co-host um mm. since since we appear to be on a tangent of alluring alliteration so let me build on on what you've put out there so far Take your pick. There's a lot of it. Well, okay. So, well, I'm, I'm going to go backwards a little bit here in terms of, like, addressing some of your last points first. There are plenty of pieces of media out there, usually movies, which have very dark themes to them, which have, like, loss of life and just feeling like you know, you eke out victory with the skin of your teeth mm. that are, in fact, some of my favorite movies out there. And, I mean, one of the obvious ones is not name-checked, because that would be ridiculous, but is paid homage to so fucking hard. And, of course, you already know that what I'm leading up to is the movie Aliens. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Rebecca you know, like, gets her get away from her you bitch moment yes exactly that was that was the moment like everything leading up to that moment was like oh god what's gonna happen oh god what's gonna happen and then we see Rebecca land and I fucking punched the air going mm. yeah um <laughs> What, what I really like about that moment is uh, it's sort of sandwiched between these two things that are kind of quite humbling, is that when she lands, it's not like perfect superhero landing. Like... Woo! Superhero landing! It's she lands and she stumbles a little bit and yeah. it's sort of like, oh, oh, oh shit, Look, uh, get away from her, you bitch. Like, it's like, yeah, nailed it. And then it's afterwards, it's like, I am not a fist fighter. Oh, 
oh shit, oh fuck. I mean, to a certain extent, that actually makes a certain degree of sense based on the movie it's paying homage to because the power loader is not really meant to be a combat vehicle. In later media that has been put out there, usually video games, they have tried to make it out to be like it could be a combat vehicle by specifically putting guns on it and shit like that. But Mm. the power loader is meant to be literally just like, I'm lifting heavy things and I'm putting them back down. It's a way of putting super heavy stuff into cargo areas and the dropship and everything like that. And it just so happens to have some functionality into it that allows it to function as armor and, you know, like it has a blowtorch and everything like that. Ripley manages to use it to great effect in that movie. And while the knight armor that is inherent to the world of Autumn is very deliberately meant to be a form of a weapon. Mm-hmm. The way it, it sort of thematically functions the same way as the power loader in Aliens, because Ripley has familiarity with the power loader. So she's able to use it in ways that compensate for the fact that it is not a combat chassis. The knight armor is a combat chassis, but Rebecca has has had barely enough time to play around with it, so she is not completely mm-hmm. confident with its functionality, and, and she's I also using it as a uh, what's the call as a, as a desperate force multiplier, so that she has mm-hmm. some chance of facing off against Seth. Yeah, and surviving against yeah. Seth. Yeah, and yeah. and basically, like she isn't even necessarily trying to take him on one on one. She is there providing support to Sana, who is a combat princess, so to speak. So mm-hmm. that's like one of the things that we see that leading up to in that final confrontation is that Sana realizes that Seth completely outclasses her, even with all of her skill at play. But the chaos of Rebecca showing up with her armor is just enough to turn the tide, not to win the fight necessarily but to bring the fight to a standstill so they can actually have a diplomacy off with seth Mm. that's what makes the difference all that there it's sort of like we need to kind of let him burn out his like desperate fury so that we can all just like kind of connect over how goddamn tired we are Mm -hmm. like that that's kind of the line at the end of the fight is that it's not even that they had won. It's just that everyone here is exhausted and and it's also how it sort of begins because Rebecca mentions, last time I tried this, I, I hadn't gone through New York for a full day in really stressful circumstances <laughs> and I hadn't also taken on a cosmic power that has ruffled my head a bit. <laughs> and it's a kickoff moment at the end that sort of helps you to relieve the tension that has been there for so much of this, where it feels like you're on the back foot. And I feel so conflicted about Seth as well, because just before this, he does such an asshole thing. He kills Curtis. Mm. That that sucks, man. And like and it's not even like malicious because to him he's fighting a war. He like mm. Curtis was his opponent. It feels all well and good. It's just like 
Could you could you not have gone after the other one? Like, could you not have taken that guy off the board? Uh, I mean, but... let's face it. Thematically, it almost makes sense that it sort of had to happen this way because yeah. at the end of this book, our heroes, what's left of Team Steam and what's left of the Crystal Gems, or I don't remember. You had you, someone came up with a better name for them recently. I'll probably just have to. To, to shoehorn that in when I do the edit on this. The Crystal um, Punks. Crystal Punks, yes, exactly. Yeah. That That's the one. They, they, they are essentially fugitives now because mm. of what they had to do. And the stuff that Stone Spring Maidens was leading to, where they were going to end up being a rebellion, having to deal with their own government mm. in addition to everything else, that's basically what's going on now. Like, so... their actions harmed the RSA armor, took mm-hmm. down Thundercloud, mm-hmm. and McPherson has already put his people into place in charge of the army. So with Curtis gone, Catherine is like the only one in a leadership position left that could potentially protect them. And mm-hmm. the cartographers as a thing are already in the process of being dissolved. So they literally have to go to ground at this point and disappear in order to start addressing some of the problems that have been teed off ever since, not just um, Stone Spring Maidens, but mm. parts of Uncivil Outlaw and the end of Steamheart as well. Well, this is my question at the end of this book, and it's great. I'm glad to be done like at the end of this and have questions, because there's so many places we can go now. But at this point, is there all that much that's tying our heroes of century to America? Because, like you say, pretty much every institution that was there and person in a high position of power is gone now. It's there's the only person I can think of is Truth. Like, what is Truth up to at this point? I forget. She's there at the end of is she part of the rebellion as well or is she going to well i have... think she, she no she is definitely considered part of the side of the rebellion i would mm-hmm. say i was pretty sure based on my memory that she would have been the gathering spearheaded by Catherine. but when i went back to check more importantly she was also there for the smaller gathering with yagyu lee tesla along with our beloved crystal punks during that dramatic moment where Harry said that it's time to rebuild. Whatever else happens, Truth stands with her sister. Not to mention that we were already talking about McPherson won the election, so to speak. Mm. He's going to bring in his own people, and in our world, a new presidency, a new administration, involves them bringing in their own people, and a lot of the time, the people that were in charge aren't necessarily going to continue to be in charge because the president is going to want to have someone that they have a good rapport with. So they're mm-hmm. going to pick from somewhere else in the chain of command or in like finding someone experienced to be things like chief of staff or head of the army or any of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So the idea that truth would be continue to be in a position is pretty unlikely, especially considering how McPherson felt about the Arlingtons way back in the eponymous Arlington book. So, yeah. to speak. Yeah. so 
for all intents and purposes, my answer is that all of the cartographers that remain are basically going to be up against the new McPherson administration. But in terms of like, is there anything that is keeping them here? My answer to that, of course, would be just like what happened with Krieger and Greta, they're not going to leave this world to rot Mm. and save themselves. They are going to fight for what matters to them. They're going to fight for the innocents that have no choice, regardless of the fact that they've sort of closed ranks and brought everyone Mm. in on their side that they know that they can trust at this point. Mm. They could, in theory, now that um, James has the power, retreat to another world, but that's... I don't necessarily want to use the word cowardly, but the point is is that that's not the character of these people. They are Mm. heroic, and they are going to try and fight the corruption that has led them to this, that has led this world to the place it is right now, with McPherson controlling the part of the world that they knew, and Tremaine with his fucking new Confederate army Mm. being a clear and present danger to all of that as well, never mind the problems from within side. And on top of that, there's already the implication at the end of Stone Spring Maidens that people on the autumn side of things have plans for this alliance between Century and Autumn. And we don't know yet what that's going to involve, whether they want to invade century Mm. or anything like that so the point is they're fighting a war potentially on multiple fronts at this point yeah and 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 despite how lest we forget the like appearance of the russian army obviously we're going to be talking about this plot element in depth and how it sort of felt like it came out of left field but going into this conversation all i could think of was a specific moment in an episode of we hate movies where they were discussing the sudden inclusion of Russians in the plot of Eraser. And because Alex is our primary audience for this, there's no reason not to include this bit. It's to a Syrian bank like in sure. an account owned by the Russian mafia. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, But the Russian mafia is introduced earlier in the film, so it's not technically like a third act Russian mafia situation. It's a third act Eels. Italian mafia, I'll tell you that oh, much. Oh, you better believe yeah. it. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> god, there's well, too many things to talk about. I know. Okay. Well, this is this is like my question was not necessarily is there anything tying them to this world? I would like none of these characters strike me as the ones to go like, okay, this one's kind of a lost cause. Let's go somewhere else. It's mm-hmm. but to me, the sense I get at the end of this is that this is starting to feel like this is going to stop being like there have been glimpses at other parts of the world, specifically the British Isles with Let Them Go and Princess Thieves at you know different points in time, but we have seen Not to other parts of the world. Great Britain versus Kalidor. Yeah. Um, that's that's it. I feel like what we're seeing now is a transition from this emphasis of just the United States, just North America. And maybe a consideration of just kind of like the wider world that mm-hmm. I get the feeling that, yes, I don't think that this, that's Steamheart version two or Mark two 
will it will still need to have like refueling stations this was a point that was brought up with thundercloud that they couldn't just fly over to other parts of the world easily they would have to set up like refueling points to make a trip like that Mm -hmm. but even so it's feeling like the ability to go to other parts of the world is seeming like less and less of an impossibility at this stage and now that we know that there are forces at work that are worth looking into and also they want to get Krieger back even though they're hesitant to do so before they know the full extent of what Rasputin can do and what he's up to but it feels as if the like the world of century is expanding that it's not just centered on America anymore it's actually potentially going elsewhere we immediately moved on to other topics so I didn't have a chance to discuss the likelihood of them going to ground in RSA-occupied territory. To be honest, I find it less likely that they would actually remain there as a body, and was instead going to suggest that the bulk of them might instead go into the uncontrolled West and set up a stronghold there. On the same continent, but outside of the RSA's influence, while continuing to have agents working on the East Coast in secret. But back to our discussion in progress. Okay, so... God, there's too many different tangents to, to go for. There's too many, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, so... Just briefly, because yeah. we're going to get back to him in, him in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're going to get back to many things in a second, because I'm trying to get back to the point that I was yeah. originally Let's pin ourselves down to specifics. A bit. Mm. Okay, so Rasputin is very likely going to be a long-term opponent. Because he got back onto his ship with his people and is very likely going back to Russia or going back to Eurasia. We have no idea what he controls at this point because everything that isn't the U.S. or the U.K. is a mystery. Not to mention that he apparently has his own power above and beyond now having the power of the portals, so to speak. So, yeah. They literally need to learn a lot more about what's going on here before they can proceed. And to be honest, part of what I'm thinking at this point, and maybe the reason why having Rasputin suddenly come into the picture actually makes sense to a certain degree, is because of all the plans that Coriolanus was putting together with his army Mm. of Duarte and Firecasters and everything like that. They had goals of conquest and it's very possible that this is being done in defense against that yes exactly i Mm. think that when we get to see more of the thieves gang that some of what we might end up seeing is the fact that rasputin made a deal for more power specifically to muster a proper defense against Coriolanus and his magic users and everything Mm. like that. Because as it stands, okay, this young Rasputin does appear to be a wizard or warlock of some stripe, but he's just one guy and we don't know what other supernatural resources he has to call upon. And this new power of the portals may be an ace in the hole that actually levels the playing field somewhat. At this point, we can we can really only speculate. 
Mm -hmm. um, so we'll come back to that. He's definitely a like the sneak attack of this book because yeah. it threads it a little bit. You get the appearance of the boat in the final paragraph of part one, and it's just mm -hmm. there's a boat that is powered by steampunk gears, but also like guided by sails and it's just like well that's a bit unusual we don't know anything like that what's this like this feels like a new player is on the board and then you get a glimpse at like i said on discord is who the fuck is this guy and <laughs> like apparently he's someone quite important it would seem and then he just at the end he just shows up and it's like hello i'm in the story now and it blindsides you because, as we all know, nobody expects. It takes the moment of victory for the characters and nullifies the mission the, the original mission was to get Greta and Krieger away from Seth the most powerful and dangerous individual and threat to America at that time and a very unknown entity and when Seth is dead and there's a sort of new peace and a feeling that like we have actually managed to resolve this in the best possible way the original fear comes to pass Greta's power is now in the hands of someone who seems very familiar with the mystical and just the unfamiliar and clearly has like sinister intentions. And it just and has feels... made a deal with Yagana, who is yeah. mysterious and in this for her own gains to begin with. Yep. So it's not a good situation and it feels like, oh no, we failed. Of mm -hmm. course, it's not a failure because the mission redefines itself as it goes on. And I really like that, that it may not be what you've set out to do, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't worth doing. Yeah, no, I, I highly agree with all of that. And this may very well be like when Alex is talking about the fact that what was originally going to be one book, Hidden Doors, I believe, is now mm -hmm. going to end up being two. So that's going to be exciting. Will the first one be called Hidden and the next and the second one be called Doors? I have no idea what he's going to end up doing with that. I, oh. If he's going to do two books, they're going to they're going to have different. No, no, I, I don't think that works. Like Hidden dot dot dot, and the next one is dot 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 Doors. No, that's just not good. <laughs> no. That's not that's not good titling of your novel. No. I think. Uh, okay, sorry. Where was I? Right. So we'll talk a little bit more about Yagana and Rasputin in a bit. When I first got onto this subject, I was trying to address the idea that there are good pieces of media out there that are dark, that can nonetheless be a lot of fun. Excuse me. Fun, but like all, like enjoyable in ways that are different from the way that, say, Stone Spring Maidens or Panther Soul are enjoyable. Or even something like, something that's completely off the wall, like, say, Last Action Hero or... You know, stuff mm. that has strong comedic influences, but still has serious stuff going on and everything like that. Guardians of the Galaxy. Exactly so, yeah. yes. Something I, can be invigorating, even if it's not necessarily uplifting. Exactly. 
I just got my own copy because I felt like I needed it for, you know, some of the future stuff that Alex is going to put out, but also for some further retrospectives on books like this, like Let Them Go and Nightfall of the Wendigo. I got a copy of Pitch Black, which uh-huh. is, yeah, which is one of those movies that has, like, I only saw it once way back when, and it left a strong enough influence on me that I wanted to revisit it after having read Let Them Go. Mm. And because I was using elements of that to compare to that book. And now it's just like, I, I want to continue talking about that, especially since, as you say, Nightfall of the Wendigo feels like a partial sequel to Let Them Go, given how much Rebecca and her story is in there. So now I have it sitting on my shelf over here and I'm going to be rewatching that as soon as possible. And that is a difficult, dark movie that has the title does not indicate that. (laughs) My point is, is that it doesn't have a traditional happy ending. It has an ending where something has been saved, but it's not even necessarily the stuff that we, we hoped would survive the movie due to its horror nature basically and Mm. everything like that but that doesn't mean that it's not a great movie and likewise that doesn't mean that nightfall the wendigo is not a good book so going further backwards in time now to address some of your original points i definitely agree that the place that our three heroes start from is part of what makes it super compelling yes I, i wrote some notes here in regards to thinking about the overall themes that bring them all together and among other things not only are they all walking wounded so to speak because of the various places that each of them have come from they're also as you said in terms of the amount of time spent in that place or the way that that manifests in their lives they're still all very different kinds of walking wounded. They have all mm. lost something, Put it, pushing it right back to Guardians of the Galaxy. I look around at us. You know what I see? Losers. I mean, like, folks who have lost stuff. And we have, man, we have, all of us. Our homes. Our families normal lives i always like that line because it's like it goes from like (laughs) silly like farcical to like genuinely like heartfelt and i think that Mm -hmm. summarizes that film and its sequel wonderfully that it is very much that they have lost different things and there's this bit where butler is cautioning james not to lose focus on what it is they're trying to accomplish here, which I think is actually like loaded with even more meaning given the fact that we know that what they go to originally accomplish is they partially fail at that because mm-hmm. they do succeed at finding out how to get Abigail back. They just like, they fail in recovering Greta and her endowment safely, but they end up achieving this other thing that Butler is cautioning them not to get sidetracked on. And at that point, James thinks about all these different things that like, because Butler mentions that like, if there weren't 
Wendigo, then Steamheart wouldn't have had to break down and we wouldn't have to have relied on the kindness of strangers. He thinks of all the things that have been lost there, like Harry's ability to walk, everything with Steamheart, the like developments in Uncivil Outlaw, and he says this quite specifically, and Annie, like a loss that is irrevocable. It is not something that you can like gain back. And I think that that sort of looks at all these different types of loss and it doesn't diminish the others by saying that you can find some element of recovery in them. Like we've seen in Stone Spring Maidens that Harry doesn't necessarily get back to who she was before or what she had before. She gets something back but it's just something new and she's brilliant and that's a wonderful book but we've talked about that okay so let's focus on the word loss here for a second yes yes because i think the important thing to say here is that based on what you said a moment ago it's not loss if it isn't irrevocable Mm. like i suppose to a certain extent you can lose something but then find it again or that you can Abigail. Yeah. Mm. But from the perspective of what James and Frank and Rebecca are actually dealing with, some of the critical aspects here are that sometimes you literally can't, get back what you've lost Mm. you can only heal from it or Mm. alternately fail to heal from it harry's situation is definitely one of she started to heal through her experience with penny Mm. both emotionally and physically and the interesting thing that's going on here is that each of them are in dark places but the thing that they don't necessarily realize or that they only begin to realize over the course of this book is that they are also in moments of transition. Hmm. So Rebecca had to become harder to survive. She had to close off who she was beforehand. Hmm. And as she stands at the beginning of the story, she is still the person to a certain extent that she had to become in Mm. order to survive in this wider world because she was literally going around like Cassandra to a certain extent, Cassandra with a shotgun, so to speak, Mm -hmm. um, trying to warn people of what happened and not being paid attention to much like the company dismissed Ripley's claims of the xenomorph at the beginning of aliens and everything like that. So she had to look out for herself Mm. and save whatever empathy was left in her into a very small space, which was, as it turns out, reserved for just Rafe that she Mm. took under, she took under her wing. She named him. She named her dog very deliberately considering that the name that she had for the previous dog was literally no name. No name. It was meant to be an expression of her closing herself off to a certain extent. 
but mm. she has Rafe by the time she comes into the picture in Steamheart, and then James, through his connection with her back in that book, opens her back up again. She's now in a place between her past and her future, and as her arc proceeds in this book, she now has the endowment of a power that helps fuel that transition. Because mm. how can you not be open to others when you've literally become a telepath? Precisely. <laughs> that's I, I think that's the perfect ability for her to get. And I feel like as we see more stories in Phase 2, it feels like our characters are acquiring and collecting sort of new abilities like new supernatural like kit essentially but mm -hmm. for rebecca it's so appropriate and i think i i appreciate that you sort of charted her trajectory from let them go to here because i think that the end point of let them go is the title when she is in the that bedroom and she confronts the various ghosts that she has accumulated over her life, she has to let them go in order to move on. And at the time, that feels like for as tragic and sad as that night and story is, that in this area, at least, there is some feeling of progression that you can move on and now that we see what comes after that it feels like we're seeing the consequences of her almost leaning too far into that that she not only lets them go she lets everything go she like tries to help a few places and she even mentions that she feels a pang of like guilt over the innocence that she left behind in the hands of the people who wouldn't listen to her and who were like steering them into calamity. But she lets that go because she just identifies a pattern that every time I do this, it never makes a difference. She calls her dog no name to kind of mean that she doesn't necessarily establish a connection or at least maybe it's a futile attempt to do so because when she loses no name that's devastating and then you get to the point in her sort of little anthology of episodes where someone takes the last picture she had left of Rafe and Amanda and, and cruelly destroys it cruelly destroys it for no reason and it's the last memory that it's the last artifact that she has of them I was going to try and put in a clip from Dark Fate here, but unfortunately I couldn't find it online. This moment, of course, makes me think about the conversation between Sarah and Danny on the log outside Carl's house, about how she never made a photo of John out of fear that the Terminators would find it, and that now she cannot remember his face. That is the voice in my head as I read this scene in Nightfall. Which kind of necessitates her calling not only her dog Rafe, as, so that there is something alive that carries his name that she mm. will protect, and there is a gun called Cleo. But mm. interestingly, she doesn't have something called Amanda. 
And it's because I don't think she ever did let her go. But at the same time, she never really resolved that in any way. And... I mean, that's definitely part of the conversation that she ends up having with Sana. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And... Because at first she sort of says, like, she she doesn't necessarily know how to respond. And when Sana kind of, like, actually says something that she hopes is a compliment or something that will sort of reassure her it kind of ends up like throwing her for a loop just she has never allowed herself to really think of like well i left her like that what could have happened and so she tries to sort of rest control back to sort of double down and say no it's far more likely that she's dead like that's what it is but then by the end of it I, like her interaction with James, I think, does start that journey, but I mm -hmm. think it's her interactions with Nadia and Sana and her taking on that power that helps her to reconnect. That's her journey, is to reconnect. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that... I, I think there's such a sort of sweet but sad quality to her saying, like, I want to be someone who has more to like aspire to than just dying before their dog or something mm. like that. And yeah, that was that was a fucking hard hitting statement. Yeah, and I think she knows this about herself that as much as she has led a life these last twelve years of isolation, of trying to let people go, she keeps on admitting that she can't quite face that. She carries Rafe and. Cleo with her and she says I don't know if I can take one more heartbreak and it's because she knows she's had to take on too many that as much as she's tried to leave that behind it stays with her and so by kind of letting the world in even if it's something that's very overwhelming and she it's going to take time and practice for her to feel comfortable to get to grips with it it's a step i've never really seen this be articulated in media before but when james feels her in his head he says the thing that like is a sort of a trope that people say get out of my head but that's the sort of instinctual reaction but then he says stay and i think that's the sort of final note of her journey there so I love this as a follow-on to Let Them Go. I had never really considered that this would be, even after seeing her all these years later in Steamheart, I never really thought about what would come next for Rebecca, what would be the natural like, next stage for her after Let Them Go. But this very much feels like that. I talk for far too long on these things. I'm so sorry. Well, you're the one that had the coffee, so, you know. But that's <laughs> fine. You're providing a lot of interesting, thought-provoking stuff that I unfortunately am going to have to move on from in order to cover this other stuff because this is hot takes and we don't have time to focus too much on any one thing. I but need to I make room for your hot takes too. I can't just take half an hour like getting to my bleeding hot take. Like by the time I get my hot plate and my hot take onto the plate, it's cold. <laughs> it is bone dry. <laughs> well, the thing that I want to say right now, as you like criticize yourself for going on too long, honestly, 
as the conversation keeps happening, the thing that I'm sort of discovering inside my own head is that I'm feeling like I really enjoy this book more than I give credit for. Because even mm-hmm. though there are elements that sort of stick in my craw a little bit, the stuff that I like is I, stuff that I really, really like. Mm-hmm. Just in terms of all of these character moments and everything like that. Well, didn't we... Wasn't when we rewind all the way back to the beginning of our journey with Through the Window, wasn't Let Them Go a book that you had complicated feelings that yeah. the process of going through yeah, that was you me pushing out on the corner bed. there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this is a a perfect sequel to that because, like, when we eventually get there, it's going to have that similar thing. Because, like you say, the like the bits that get to you are like really good, and also the other bits that get to you are (laughs) yeah. Well, see, the, the thing there is that sometimes, sometimes the stuff that you like are are things that tear your heart out. But like tear your heart out in the best possible way. Thank sometimes you, sir, can I have another? <laughs> sometimes the things that hurt you hurt you in ways that like you need to experience a little bit, or that maybe that you need to experience in a safe place. Because mm. when pieces of media invoke emotional reactions from you, there is still the idea that these are fictional stories. Mm. Nothing has actually been lost. These are just tales that we can draw inspiration from and wonder from and humor from and a lot of other things. But they are ultimately worlds that we lose ourselves in and then we come back into our own reality and Mm. take whatever we gained from that piece of media with us without anything actually having been harmed. Mm. characters may lose or people may die bad things may happen but if you can take something positive away from the overall experience then that's really what matters when you invest yourself in a piece of fiction that matters to you basically Mm. Mm. And, and horror is often like in particular pointing out to have that effect is that you're exploring very troubling imagery and subject matter and themes but in a capacity that is means you don't actually have to go through those things physically or literally yourself that you're Mm -hmm. able to kind of experience them by proxy Mm -hmm. exactly and that's the best possible place that i could put a pin in it so that's it for this week with more coming hot on its heels to play us out Most people are aware of the Jonathan Colton song by this name that went with the acclaimed action puzzle platformer Portal in 2007. But in 2008, a different game was released that was a first-person parkour game called Mirror's Edge. It came complete with its own theme music, brilliantly composed by Arnthor Bergeson and Rami Yacoub, and performed by a Swedish pop performer. This is a piece that I've been waiting for a chance to use, and was originally going to wait until Uncivil Outlaw, but decided that it worked very well here. Until next time, this is Lisa Miskowski with Still Alive.